Welcome to the QI chat room. I'm your host, Kelly Bond. This podcast is brought to you by Redwood Community Health Coalition, or RCHC for short. We're a network of community health centers and a wellness education site throughout Marin, Napa, Sonoma, and Yolo counties. We formed in 1994 with a mission of improving access to and the quality of care provided for underserved and uninsured people. This podcast is all about quality improvement, or QI, in healthcare. We'll bring you speakers from our member health centers, outside health centers, county and federal agencies, healthcare plans, and more. Those speakers will discuss promising practices they've identified at health centers, the latest data on specific health topics, and engage in conversation with our live audience. We've been hosting these chat rooms since late 2018 and transitioned to the podcast format in the fall of 2019 to reach a greater range of listeners. We hope you'll join us as we share the latest in quality improvement with you. This episode features Trina Higgins, a registered dietitian from the Northern California Center for Wellbeing. A registered dietitian, or RD, is someone who's licensed to counsel patients on their dietary habits. To become a dietitian, one must obtain a four-year degree with many specific dietetic course requirements, complete a dietetic internship, and pass a rigorous exam. By the year 2024, it will be required that one earn a master's degree to be eligible to take the exam. In other words, there's a lot of nutrition knowledge behind the title. While some health centers have an RD on staff, many do not. Those that do are often limited in how many patients that RD can fit into their schedule. We'll save the issues around reimbursement for dietitians for another episode. Trina joined us to talk about nutrition counseling techniques for healthcare providers. This topic was requested by RCHC member health center providers. In general, providers don't receive much nutrition education and training in school, so we agree that some basic nutrition counseling techniques could help. I actually have a special connection to this topic. My undergraduate degree is in nutrition, and I focused my master's work on food access and insecurity. Personally speaking, I really value the work Trina's doing at the Center for Wellbeing, and I'm grateful for the counseling tips she was able to provide. Here's Trina. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, first of all, nutrition counseling is a time-intensive in, uh, and complex endeavor with patients. Um, food is definitely an emotional thing for most people. Um, and so understanding that in primary care, we have a limited time with patients often. Um, what I hear from providers with whom I work is that, you know, the limited amount of time that we have to talk to patients is one of the main pressures that makes nutrition counseling a challenge in that setting. Um, that being said, there are definitely tools that I can recommend and strategies that uh, all providers can take on um, even with that. Um, so if you are uh, brave enough to take it on, uh, we can talk about some tools today that can help. Um, so. My understanding of the focus of this talk is diabetes management, um, but also some of these tools can apply to nutritional management of other health conditions. Many of the conditions for which we would provide nutritional counseling are metabolic disease, um, whether it's prediabetes or hyperlipidemia or obesity um, or 
diabetes itself or cardiovascular disease, um, many of the strategies are aligned to control all of those conditions, which is convenient. Um, and so, you know, when you endeavor to provide nutrition counseling for a patient, of course, you want to define ahead of time what the goals are. Um, so for a patient with diabetes, of course, the primary goal is blood glucose control. Um, weight loss, if appropriate. Um, not, of course, not all patients with uh, hyperglycemia have uh, weight overweight issues. Um, so we want to be on the lookout for that because many patients who are quote-unquote normal weight or healthy weight um, get missed in terms of the diagnosis of hyperglycemia though we know that that metabolic disease can occur in patients of all body weights. Um, in addition to blood glucose control and weight management, we want to be on the lookout for uh, lipid control. Uh, and so in any case, today we're going to focus on blood glucose. Um, as I explained to many patients, blood glucose control is important not only for people with diabetes, uh, but also for anyone who wishes to prevent metabolic disease uh, related to dietary imbalance. And most of the dietary imbalance that I see in my practice relates to excessive intake of refined carbs, uh, junk food, uh, high sugar drinks, um, things that we've all seen li likely in our patients, and things that are just a symptom of and, and a result of the changing food environment. Um, one resource that I like to recommend to provide sort of a history of that is Marian Nessel. If anybody's uh, heard of her, she's an excellent researcher and dietitian at NYU. She's written many books over the years on food politics and looks into the historical and economic underpinnings of the changes in our food landscape, which have really serious ramifications for all of us. Um, and she looks at that history starting in the 1970s um, in parallel to the rise of obesity and metabolic diseases. I'll second Trina's recommendation for folks to check out Dr. Marion Nessel. Google her and you'll find a plethora of information. She's written numerous books on everything from food safety, food politics, and nutrition research to the pet food industry. She's all about food and examining the forces at play in the food system. One of my favorite books is Eat, Drink, Vote that's filled with cartoons. I even got her to sign my copy. Her website is foodpolitics.com. Trina brought this up because it can be helpful to put the food system into context for patients. Much of what they're going through may be related to the larger food environment. We have not changed much as a species over the last 50 years, but the incidence of obesity and metabolic disease has risen at a super alarming rate. Um, you know, diabetes type 2 used to have a prevalence of about 1%. Now it's getting up to 10% or more in certain populations. Um, and that type of change is not a result of, of course, genetic change or any other changes other than environment. Um, An environment encompasses things like what foods are around us, how much physical activity we're getting, what our environmental stressors, stressors are, um, all of our health habits, um, and I like to mention sleep as well. But back to dietary assessment. Um, so I'm going to start by um, taking an example that is probably common to many of our practices. So um, we have, let's see, like a 57-year-old woman with a diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. Um, she's had diabetes for maybe 10 years. Uh, she's been controlled with metformin for several years, but recently her A1C has gotten up above 10%, and she's, 
And so um, as her provider, you're recommending that she begin insulin, which is very frightening for her, and she's wondering what else she can do to help control her blood sugar. Um, now, before we launch into nutritional counseling, we want to understand uh, what is going on with this patient nutritionally. Um, and it's important to understand the cultural dietary preferences, of course, of the populations you're working with. Um, and then from there, not to make any assumptions. Um, so say our patient is Latina, um, we might ask about certain foods that we understand to be a part of her cultural food practices, uh, but then stay open to what it is that she actually does on a personal basis. Um, so the best tool, in my opinion, to assess where a patient is coming from is uh, a dietary recall, so like a 24-hour recall. The way that works is you want to start with the last meal that the patient ate, so say she's coming in for a, an 11 o'clock visit, what does she have for breakfast? And then working backwards from there, dinner last night, lunch the day before, uh, even breakfast the day before. Um, and actually, this is something that patients can do on paper. If uh, they are roomed, a medical assistant can give them a form, so uh, just a 24-hour recall form with a place to write down breakfast, lunch, dinner, any snacks in between, times that they've eaten such meals. Um, and of course, patients with low literacy might not be able to complete this form or might be able to complete it just in a limited fashion. So um, having a medical assistant or any other um, person in the practice who might be rooming the patient help the patient through and perhaps complete the form for them, whether electronically or on paper, um, can also be helpful. Um, so getting a sense of what the patient's baseline is by their report is a good way to start. Um, one of the reasons I recommend this, uh, the 24-hour recall versus what do you typically eat, which is sometimes called a typical day recall, is that the 24-hour recall, which is intended to report on what the patient actually ate in the previous day, uh, will tend to give a more accurate account of what the patient ate, um, as opposed to the patient imagining what they typically eat. Um, that being said, the 24-hour recall is not infallible. Um, we know that patients and all human beings tend to underestimate what we eat. Um, so that is really just a starting point. From there, you can take that information and fill in the blanks. Um, you'll want to ask about things like side dishes, accompaniments. Maybe patients eat six tortillas with meals, but they wouldn't necessarily write that down because they don't think of it as often as a part of the meal that they're reporting. Um, so because patients don't have the same perspective necessarily on a 24-hour recall that we have as providers, um, our perspective is that we want to see the whole breadth of what they're eating, count all the carbs, get a sense of what the nutritional balance is. But things that often get left out are side dishes, beverages. Um, so asking about things like, you know, what did you have with this meal? If you anticipate that there might have been a side that you're aware of that typically accompanies, then that's a good question to ask, um, just to sort of flesh out the details. Um, so asking questions to fill in the blanks is super important when it comes to the 24-hour recall. Um, if there are foods or drinks that you suspect might be causing an issue, things like high sugar drinks are at the top of the list. Um, but asking about sugary drinks 
literally uh, using those words is not necessarily going to get the response that you want. You've got to name names. You've got to say not just sodas, but are you drinking agua de sabor, which is like a flavored beverage that might have a lot of sugar in it, or juices. Many patients aren't aware of how high in sugar juices are. Yogurts, if you look at some of these yogurt drinks, they have just as much sugar as a Coca-Cola. Um, so being aware of what the likely sort of sugar bombs are going to be in a patient's diet uh, is helpful. Um, iced teas, if you look at you know those Arizonas, they have 20 teaspoons of sugar in those cans. Um, so again, many patients aren't aware of how much sugar is in what they're drinking. Um, and then another thing that can happen with the 24-hour recall is that it can look really perfect and beautiful, and you're wondering, how is it, does this patient have high blood sugar? Uh, so asking the patient, not immediately jumping to the conclusion that they are misrepresenting what they're eating, but rather asking, uh, have you made any changes to your diet lately? Are you doing anything in particular to help control your blood sugar? This has happened to me so many times where I've looked at a patient's 24-hour recall and I've thought, there's nothing I can tell this patient. They're doing really well. Uh, but it turns out that they maybe have been working on diet changes for the last week or so. Um, and so then from there, you can provide really good encouragement. Um, so that's sort of a good starting point. Um, anything that I mentioned on that that you want to um, ask questions about? I know I've been talking about yeah. 10 minutes straight. <laughs> that was great. I'm wondering about the a patient's readiness to change. Yeah. If you've identified something they could work on. What are some tips for providers to kind of navigate that patient's readiness? That's a really great question, and that's a huge part of uh, skilled nutrition counseling and any uh, healthcare really that we're providing to patients. So, um, assessing a patient's stage of change, and if we're talking about you know sort of the stages of change model. Um, of course, just basic, basic questions. If they're coming to me as a dietitian, there's already an assumption that they're here to talk about nutrition. But if they're going to a medical provider, that might not be what they're expecting, or maybe they haven't thought about it. So just providing a basic starting point question like, have you thought about making any changes to what you're eating uh, or drinking to help control your blood sugar? Are you aware that um, what we eat and drink has a really significant impact on how our blood sugar comes out. Um, just getting a sense of where the patient's awareness is around that to start with can give you a really good sense of um, uh, where the patient's at in the stage of change. Um, from there, you might hear from the patient that they're not aware that what they're eating is affecting their blood sugar or that they might be in denial that what they're eating is affecting their blood sugar. Um, or they might uh, be really interested in learning more. They've heard that, you know, X diet helps with blood sugar. Do you think that's true? So they are, are always interested in knowing what their healthcare providers think about diets that are out there that everybody's heard about. We took a break to have a short question and answer period. The first question that came in is as follows. Among the top challenges recognized in clinical counseling is the inadequate training and therefore lack of confidence for providers. What are some links and or materials you can recommend to help onboard with basic counseling? Having uh, medical providers in my family, I know that the training is limited um, in medical school and other forms of, of training, so I empathize with that question. Um, yes, I can recommend some materials. Uh, the question is, can I recommend some links and materials to help PCPs get on board with basic counseling? 
Um, so basic counseling, uh, I'm assuming this is nutrition counseling. Uh, so we are going to talk today about uh, carb counting. Um, and so carbohydrate counting is a well-accepted practice in uh, helping to control blood sugar through diet. Um, I'll talk also about something called the plate, uh, plate method, which is helpful for, uh, in my opinion, patients with lower literacy level or patients for whom carb counting just feels confusing and overwhelming. Um, there are some great, so if you, if you look up online just diabetic exchange lists, um, you will find information on um, carb counting and that approach. Uh, Novo Nordisk actually, which many of us might know as a pharmaceutical company, published really great educational materials for diabetes management um, under Cornerstones for Care. Uh, so if you look up uh, Novo Nordisk Cornerstones for Care, there are some great free education materials for patients available. Um, in my opinion, they're not awesome for low literacy level. Many of them are pretty text heavy, but for providers, it can give you some good education on uh, some nutrition, counseling, and information for, for diabetes management. Um, those are a couple of the most readily accessible uh, tools. Also, actually, AADE, which is the, ooh, let's see, American Association of Diabetes Educators, I might have gotten that wrong, um, they also have great educational materials available. Um, so look up those three things um, online and you'll get some, especially the latter two, Nova Nordisk and AADE, and you'll find some good educational materials related to nutrition. Um, I'd be happy to continue, you know, doing <laughs> uh, talks like this if people want more depth on, on nutrition counseling nitty-gritty than we're able to get to today with the limited time. Um, so consulting a dietitian, consulting a diabetes educator, advocating for these people in your organizations, um, we're out there. Uh, we're under, underutilized in the primary care setting, in my opinion. Um, and if you are able to access local resources like the place that I work, which is the Center for Wellbeing, we partner independently with uh, all local uh, healthcare organizations to provide nutrition education and uh, in a group and individual setting for patients. So. Um, if these are things that feel overwhelming to you and you're not able to get to them in depth in your visits with patients, you know, find out who your referral resources are in your community. Um, and we serve all of Sonoma County and even counties beyond. Uh, we get patients from Napa, Lake, um, adjacent counties as well, Marin. Uh, so in any case, um, I want to move on to the next question. I'm just uh, wondering if you have any um, tips for primary care providers. Right now we do um, a, a like some open-ended questions that the medical assistants ask, uh, like what, um, what do you eat or drink that is healthy for you? What do you eat or drink that is not healthy for you? Um, and then we have nutritionists that we can refer to in-house. Um, but I'm just wondering if like there's um, ways to introduce like what the nutritionist does that you found helpful for patients in um, you know, in in them accepting that referral or things maybe that's not helpful to say? Or, or do you really just go off of, like, where the patient's at with their readiness? 
Um, I guess I'm, the way I'm understanding the question is um, how to talk to patients about their nutrition and perhaps how to encourage them to see a nutritionist or dietitian. Um, yeah. So, great. Um, so I think that that's a, asking those questions as you phrase them I think is great to find out where a patient's knowledge base is and perhaps what they're doing to take care of themselves and also what their perception is on what uh, dietary practices might be harming them. Um, and from there, uh, I would say that there may be a lot of misperceptions that you'll uh, see coming out of the answers of those, to those questions from patients, and that's an opportunity for you to um, provide some education on the spot, but also to say, you know, it sounds like maybe there's some ideas that could help you to forward your health and improve your blood sugar uh, related to what you're eating. Uh, we have a great nutritionist that you can talk to. You know, one of the things that I like to say, uh, even about my colleagues when sort of passing patients back and forth, um, is to really emphasize how friendly and non-judgmental <laughs> the dietitian is. Uh, people get scared, I think, about seeing a dietitian or a nutritionist because, uh, again, food is very personal and emotional. Um, and it's so important to understand that and show patients that their care in, a, in the nutrition sense is not going to be sort of punishing or uh, judging of where they're coming from. And so, you know, emphasizing that the person you're referring them to is kind and understanding and also that the interventions are very effective and um, coming back to the idea that, you know, you're here at this visit today, I can see that you're wor worried about X problem, whether it's weight or blood sugar or cholesterol, this therapy can really, really help um, and uh, can help even reduce your burden of medication, um, potentially if it goes well. Um, so all of these things can help a patient um, along in their motivation to see somebody to help them with their nutrition. Um, also pointing out that nutrition information out there is very confusing. This person can really, being the nutritionist or dietitian, can really help to clarify and make less confusing um, the field <laughs> of all of that misinformation and conflicting uh, advice out there. And then uh, I see a follow-up question. How long does a 24-hour recall usually take? It's quick. Um, I can do a 24-hour recall for most people in two minutes uh, tops. Um, or even better, if you're a primary care provider and you have your patient waiting in the room, this is something that can keep them entertained. <laughs> uh, patients who sit in the waiting room filling this form out can take up to 10 minutes doing it, depending on how detailed they want to get. Of course, um, you know, we intercept them partway through and just help them finish it up. But um, it can be also a way to sort of, uh, you know, sometimes I know we run behind in our visits in primary care, and it can be something that they can do, which is something sometimes nice. Um, but if you need to do it quickly, it can be done in a couple minutes. Um, and then, you know, the follow-up questions might take another minute after that. Um, so in my opinion, it's pretty quick. We'd gone through all of the questions that had come in, and so we returned to talking about carb counting. Backing up a little bit, if you do or intend to do or want to take on any form of nutritional counseling in your practice, I would highly, highly, highly suggest taking some time to develop some visual aid to help you along because it will 
make your nutrition education far more efficient if you have these materials developed or at your fingertips. Um, if you find something online, say at AADE or Novo Nordisk, Cornerstones for Care, that you like and you want to use, um, by all means. But if you find that there are parts of it that parts of the educational materials that don't quite suit your patient population, or if you find that you need something that's better for lower literacy levels, it is so worthwhile to take the time to develop those materials. It will benefit your patients. Um, we, I spend so much time on my own educational materials for my patients, and it really pays off. Um, I use a lot of images. Um, even patients with higher literacy levels respond better to image-based, in my, in my experience, image-based educational materials. Um, CDC, actually, if you look up um, CDC low literacy educational materials, you will find online a great PowerPoint that uh, can provide guidance on how to develop educational materials for patients of lower literacy levels. It's excellent. I highly recommend it. Um, and particularly for patients with lower literacy, uh, consider leading with tools that don't involve math. So I'm going to talk about carb counting, which is very effective, but you can also use something called a plate method. And many of us have seen different vari various types of plates whether it's USDA's MyPlate or Harvard's Healthy Eating Plate, which I prefer to USDA, um, or uh, even just the basic half non-starchy vegetables, a quarter carb, a quarter healthy protein with some healthy fat sprinkled around. Um, that's actually the plate that we use most often. It is simple. It is straightforward. It is effective as a visual cue to proportion macronutrients appropriately on the plate to control blood sugar and calories. Um, so you can find a lot of these images for such plates online, or you can create your own. Um, but by all means, develop some visual aid to support your education um, for patients. For counting carbohydrates, um, first of all, you want to identify what carbs are, whether that's on a handout with a bunch of pictures of starches and fruits and um, milk and yogurt and um, uh, sweets. You want to help patients understand where they're getting carbs. Many patients don't understand that fruits are carbs. Many patients don't understand that milk and yogurt provide carbs. So clarifying those things can be super helpful. Um, once you get there, um, the way we count carbohydrates is in 15-gram units. So um, what provides 15 grams of carbohydrate depends on the type of carb, um, meaning the portion size depends on the type of carb. So uh, for Rice, for example, cooked rice, one third of a cup provides 15 grams of carb. So that means that a complete cup is three carb choices or 45 grams. Um, now, old recommendations, old outdated recommendations from certain organizations like ADA um, used to recommend a certain specific number of carb choices, 15 gram carb choices per meal. It used to be something like two to four for women, three to five for men. Those recommendations no longer exist. ADA or American Diabetes Association does not recommend a specific number of carbs per meal. Um, it is all uh, individually based on glycemic control. Um, so what 
and those older recommendations, in my opinion, for many patients provide way too much carb. Um, we go somewhat lower at the Center for Wellbeing. There is increasing research to show that um, relatively lower carb intake actually benefits patients if you have an appropriate uh, balance of macronutrients and adequate non-starchy vegetables and fiber to offset calories. In any case, um, we tend to start with one to three carb choices per meal, depending on a patient's glycemic control, response to meals, um, and dietary habits. Uh, all those things have to be taken into consideration. So that might look like 15 to 45 grams of carb per meal. We encourage patients to, if they have a blood glucose meter, to use it um, to see how they're tolerating carbs. It doesn't mean that they have to check every day after every meal. That's a huge burden of blood sugar checks for patients. Um, incidentally, patients with gestational diabetes have to do that, and that is rough. I work with a lot of those patients, and um, it, is, it is a huge burden for them and good for those patients who end up doing all those blood sugar checks every day. That being said, um, what, the way we encourage patients to utilize their glucometers is to do, say, their fasting sugar check um, and then pick one meal of the day for about a week to sort of analyze. So do your fasting check in the morning and um, then pick one meal of the day, say breakfast. Let, let me see how I'm doing after breakfast this week. So then you check one hour or one to two hours after the start of breakfast to see how that meal is affecting throughout the week, uh, the blood sugar. Then the next week, do the same thing, but after lunch. And then you can see, the patient can see how different food choices affect their blood sugar. Um, Many providers are reluctant to recommend a glucometer to patients, especially if their A1C is lower than, you know, seven. Um, certainly, if patients are very opposed to using a glucometer, we don't need to push it on them. But there is no other way for patients to see when during the day their blood sugar is going high. So to get that insight into their glycemic control, um, is really powerful uh, because then they can see, oh, this is where I'm spiking. This is where I can uh, have an impact on my control. And if it's fasting, that actually, of course, to the provider gives a lot of good information on how um, certain medications might be adjusted, say bedtime, bedtime insulin um, or others. So um, it is a, an extremely powerful tool that empowers the patient. Um, and in our diabetes education classes at the Center for Wellbeing, we do in-class blood sugar checks to help sort of take the fear out of it um, and make that information feel more accessible to patients. Um, so one to three carb choices back to carb counting is a great starting point for most patients. Um, one thing that we always, always advise patients is that if they're on insulin, especially mealtime insulin, but even, um, even long-acting, um, they may, as they're changing their diet, start to see drops in their blood sugar. Um, so getting into a, letting patients know that they should feel comfortable calling the clinic if they start to experience more frequent lows. Um, and perhaps making a plan in advance with patients on how to adjust their medications as appropriate um, if they start to see their blood sugar dropping lower um, is a really important thing, a really important conversation to have with patients. Um, I, in our diabetes education classes and, and nutrition practice at the center, we see this all the time when patients start to make 
great, excellent, healthy changes to their dietary and lifestyle habits, um, they start to see their blood sugar drop. Um, and some patients, if they are not working with their providers to adjust their medications, can see, um, you know, hypo, can see some low blood sugar uh, in, a, in an uncomfortable and even, you know, trending toward dangerous ways. So it's very important to have these conversations in advance. Um, one thing to note is that for patients not on insulin um, or um, sulfonylureas, uh, which are, as everybody listening probably knows, the two medications most associated with hypoglycemia, risk um, for patients not on those meds, say patients on metformin or other classes of meds uh, that don't tend to cause lows, Frequent snacking is no longer necessary. We used to believe that diabetics needed to snack every couple hours to prevent a low. Um, snacking was really emphasized, but with newer diabetes medications, that snacking is no longer as necessary. And it, uh, if we take a, if we reduce some of the snacking behaviors, we can help patients to lose weight. Uh, so helping patients to understand that they can go a few hours between meals if they're not feeling hungry, and that's okay. Um, one other thing that we recommend uh, that's very important for blood sugar management is, um, especially if you're taking something away off the plate, say carbohydrates, um, we need to replace it with something else. Um, and it's beneficial to replace it with things that are high in protein, high in fiber, um, that contain some fat for not only blood sugar balance, uh, meaning keeping the blood sugar, you know, from, from spiking and crashing, but also for satiation and satiety. Um, so that is helpful for control of appetite. So for that reason, that balanced plate or, or, or um, healthy plate model where we have the protein, the non-starchy veg, the healthy fat, um, balance, balancing out the protein, um, that is, a, in my opinion, a very useful tool uh, for patients who are using carb counting or for patients who are not using carb counting understanding that those other macronutrients and their presence in the meal is helpful for um, blood sugar balance. Um, so when we take away the carb, uh, the first thing that we, we suggest replacing it with is more non-stretchy vegetables, um, but assuring that there's a good protein source with each meal and snack is something that we also emphasize. Uh, protein helps us to be satiated, um, and it helps prevent patients from overloading on carbs to fill up. From Christina, she's asking, do you have any recommendations for patients who live off of food banks? I have a couple of them that live with diabetes and cannot afford any food ex except donated and food bank. Everything is mostly processed. Would it be a good idea to carb count? This is an excellent question. Um, there are food banks that have diabetic food distributions. Uh, so if a patient has a diagnosis of diabetes, um, find out if your local food bank offers this. I know Redwood Empire Food Bank does a specific diabetes box for patients with diabetes, and they do need a proof of a medical history in order to be eligible for that distribution. Um, that being said, uh, you know, I, I have patients who receive that box, and I am, I'm so thankful for the work of Redwood Empire Food Bank for what they do for our community. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have not had the opportunity to work in a food bank, I don't know what the limitations are for what they receive and what they're able to distribute, um, but I know that 
even within that program, um, sometimes the proportions of items in the box are very carb heavy. They might be a healthier carb choice than what might be put out in the general general distri distribution, but um, it's not it's not the perfect ideal diabetic diet, um, unfortunately, uh, for for many of these patients. So when it comes to patients of uh, that are in that uh, in that situation, if they are eligible for things like SNAP um, or other types of food assistance, that can be a great supplement. Uh, so making sure you have someone in your organization or if you yourself can get them connected with other um, supports in that regard, uh, that is that is valuable. Um, and within, if, if, if patients are truly operating just within sort of food bank distributions, then it's true that carb counting might not be the most useful tool in the arsenal uh, because that can feel overwhelming and discouraging for a patient whose choices are so limited. Um, so what we can do from there is harm reduction, find out what, they're, what they have available to them. Um, if they have a certain, any amount of food budget, um, working with patients to strategize what would be healthy, affordable options, uh, buying frozen vegetables instead of fresh, shopping seasonal so we're not paying a premium for things shipped from other countries, um, and understanding that planning ahead saves money. Uh, so, you know, a pot of lentil soup can feed a person for a few days for the cost of one to two fast food meals um, if they have cooking facilities available to them. Uh, so having an arsenal also of, of healthy recipes to provide that are of low cost can be very helpful. Um, so I would say, just to answer that, that last question, that perhaps for this case for a patient living on um, food from that is donated, carb counting may not be the most useful tool. In that case, we might look at other aspects of their self-care uh, in addition to choosing the healthiest items possible that they're available to them, uh, but focusing as well on what are we doing for physical activity? How are we doing on our medication management? How is the stress management? How is the sleep? All of these things can impact our, um, our blood sugar and our health and our food choices. I talked a little bit about the presence of protein and fat and non-starchy vegetable in the meal to help balance blood sugar. Patients often feel anxious about reducing their carb intake, especially if it's a habitual thing that they're eating multiple servings of carbohydrates per meal. Um, uh, so I, I, going back to sort of my imagined patient, our 57-year-old diabetic female Latina who is coming in and being started on insulin, um, I actually have a specific patient in mind whose details I've changed <laughs> for the purpose of this imagination, uh, this imagined visit. Um, so the patient I'm thinking of uh, came to us, had just started insulin, uh, was very, very anxious and feeling very discouraged about her chances of improving her diabetes with um, diet changes. And she'd been told repeatedly that she needed to cut out pan dulce, which is um, a Mexican pastry, in order to control her blood sugar. And that if she had it in her mind that if she was not able to reduce her intake of this food, that she would never be able to control her diabetes and that it was on a, an irreversible path. Um, and one of the things that it's important to explain to patients is that, um, you know, getting back to stages of change and readiness for change around nutrition, is that there are literally dozens of things that we can do to improve our health and our blood sugar. And if one of those 
things such as pastry or tortillas or soda um, is a hot button topic and feels way too challenging for the patient to address head on as a first goal, then pick a different one. There's nothing wrong with picking a smaller, more easily attainable goal as a first step. In fact, we know from research that if patients achieve success with a small goal, it's motivating. People respond to encouragement. People respond to positivity. Um, so finding any sliver of, of positivity and um, success in the patient's story, just showing up to the visit today, just complying with medication schedules, just being here to discuss this, this topic and see what we can do next. All of these things are really positive signs that we sometimes take for granted with patients. So if we find that the patient is feeling overwhelmed, getting back to what's working, getting back to what's going well, um, and then finding the path forward that might not be the most obvious change that would help them as we see it, um, but will be an inroad uh, is, a, is a, an important strategy. So with this patient I'm thinking of who had, um, you know, the pastry issue, um, you know, we did not address that one head on to begin with. We talked about what she could add in. We talked about adding protein to her meals. Sometimes we need to add something before we take it away. Uh, we talked about different recipes she could try to increase her vegetable intake. Um, traditional recipes like ensalada de nopales, which is like a cactus uh, based salad uh, that she really enjoyed. Um, she didn't realize it was a healthy choice. And um, so all of these opportunities for amplifying what she can do well with the tools that she currently has um, were ways that we built her confidence. Um, and over time, and one of the other details about nutrition counseling is that um, if you're going to take it on, it requires, that, that type of change requires time. Um, and it requires follow-up. So setting specific action plans, um, smart action plans, specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, time-bound, um, and then checking in on those action plans, finding out how the patient's doing. And if, they, if the action plan didn't go well, well, there's not something wrong with the patient. There was something wrong with the plan. Let's go back to the plan and make it more accessible. Or maybe let's try a different tack. This, this takes time and patience and understanding that it's a process, uh, that patients have spent years and years forming the habits that they have, and that time and practice needs to be allowed for them to unravel and for new habits to be formed. Um, so this topic can get very deep and complex. Um, encourage patients to talk to their families. If there are family members who do some or all or part of the cooking or shopping for food, um, encourage them to come to visits if the patient feels comfortable with that. Getting that family support or even just having the family member hear the nutrition counseling from someone other than the patient um, can be so valuable and supportive to the patient. Uh, we always encourage patients to bring their loved ones to visits if they feel comfortable doing that and to classes if, the, if their loved ones can attend classes so that everybody can be on board. Um, so often patients want to make the changes such as cutting out soda, cutting out pastries, et cetera, but there's somebody at home that brings them home all the time, and that temptation is just too great. Uh, we know as human beings it's human nature that when something delicious is in front of us, we're going to eat it. <laughs> um, and so working with that home food environment is so critical. Um, 
One piece that I would be remiss not to mention is weight management. Of course, overweight and obesity is such a, a huge driver of many of these metabolic issues. Um, and in order to help patients with their weight, um, first of all, we, we have to be honest with patients about their weight, but we also have to be sensitive. Um, when patients hear that they are categorically obese, uh, this is something that can shut people down. We don't, of course, we're not going to lie or misrepresent the facts to patients, but what we, what we can say is that, you know, their weight is placing them at risk for certain things, or their weight is also contributing to their blood sugar issue. Um, and that what we know is that when patients lose even a, a modest amount of weight, say 5 to 10% of their weight, and calculate that for them. Say if it's a 200-pound patient, 5 to 10% would be 10 to 20 pounds. Um, put it in those terms for patients, um, that even with that amount of weight loss, um, we see an improvement in blood sugar and blood pressure and blood lipids. Um, so helping patients to understand that they don't have to get to the perfect weight in order for their health to improve is also sometimes a relief. Um, but one of the things that is driving our weight issues in this country is our not only the change in our food environment to include a lot of junk food and uh, processed foods that hit the blood sugar really hard, um, but also just the increase in portion sizes. Uh, patients have, many patients and many of us, all of us nowadays have a very distorted idea of what um, an appropriate portion size is. Um, and there, so there are a lot of factors contributing to that. Um, emotional and stress eating, of course, is a huge issue for a lot of patients. Mindless eating is a bigger issue now than it's ever been. Uh, patients eating while driving, eating while on the phone, not sitting down for meals together, um, eating while watching TV. Um, this is uh, an issue that is not always likely to be addressed in a typical medical visit because it's sort of a rabbit hole. Um, but again, if you want to inform yourself about some of the factors contributing to this issue for patients, I highly recommend looking up online. Uh, Marianne Nessel, she did a great Authors at Google talk. You can find a 40-minute YouTube lecture that she gave sort of summarizing some of the most interesting bits of her research if you want to learn a little bit more about the environmental factors that have contributed to our obesity epidemic. Um, but in any case, understanding that patients, and we all are living in an environment that is conducive to overeating, um, and then helping patients to identify what factors might be impacting them um, is, is an important perspective to, take in mind, uh, to keep in mind. Um, one of the things that I always ask patients about is sleep and stress. Uh, because we know that those two factors can really heavily contribute to um, overweight and overeating. Um, so one thing that I just want to sum up with is uh, just to remember that there are literally dozens of things that our patients can do and that we can all do to improve our health. Um, and um, if a patient comes to you and your focus is to talk to them about their nutrition and you end up giving them a recommendation on sleep, um, guess what, that's gonna help their blood sugar too and their nutrition in all likelihood. So finding the inroad, um, keeping in mind all of the environmental factors that might be contributing to a patient's nutritional ill health, um, all of that is, is valuable in taking steps forward with patients. And you're not always going to get to 
the pastry problem at the first visit. Um, but if you perhaps manage the half a dozen other things that are going on surrounding the patient that are ultimately leading to overeating of certain foods like pastries, then what happens is you end up addressing that issue in the long run. So my patient, uh, who I brought up as an example today, um, after several visits and follow-ups, both with group education and one-on-one, -on -one, um, she was able to reduce her intake of pastries. She found that she felt much better eating in the way that we were recommending, and the pastries sort of naturally fell by the wayside. Um, and she came to us, I want to say, in February of last year, and her A1C was over 10, and by June, I got a phone call from her. Uh, she was so excited she'd gotten her A1C back, and it was down to 7.7 .7 in just a few months. And of course, she knew she wasn't at goal uh, 100%, but she felt that she was well on her way. Um, and. Uh, the most important thing that came out of that for me was that uh, she, her anxiety around her eating had resolved. She felt confident. She felt that she had the tools she needed to move forward. So keeping at, the point of the story is that keeping at it with our patients little by little, supporting them with stepwise goals uh, in favor of healthy eating and healthy lifestyle habits all around is an important and fruitful endeavor. Um, I highly recommend that you take it on in your practices in some form. Um, and if you do have a, uh, access to a dietitian, there's a lot that we can do for you and your patients. Um, and so in any case, I'm happy to answer any more questions. Oh, we do have uh, another one from Christina. What mm -hmm. exercise do you recommend for patients during wintertime? Mm -hmm. I get a lot of patients that will gain weight uh, because it's too cold to exercise or walk outside. I showed them YouTube videos, but do you have any alternative recommendations? YouTube is great. Um, of course, not every patient has access. Oops, I just kicked something to the uh, internet. In RCHC's training room where we recorded this episode, there are these notorious tables. And if you even slightly touch them with your leg, they make this horrific banging sound, which is what you just heard. Apologies for the noise. I thought it was kind of funny, so I left it in. Here's Trina. Um, but many, of course, many patients do. Um, so uh, that that is a go-to of mine as well. I, I love that recommendation. Um, and you, the nice thing about YouTube is you can tailor that search for any number of patients. Um, I actually just met with a, an 85-year-old patient for whom we did a Google search of chair exercises for seniors, or not Google, uh, YouTube, and you know, hundreds of videos popped up. Um, so teaching people how to use YouTube as a resource is, is excellent. Um, aside from that, um, indoor exercises, weight re uh, light weight training or resistance exercises, often um, we can find resources that just provide visual aid on how to perform simple body weight resistance exercises if patients don't have, say, dumbbells in the house. Um, like squats or lunges or push-ups using the wall or a countertop if they can't do them on the floor. Um, so having those types of resources available, say with 10 or so exercises patients can do indoors and they can do a circuit of, you know, 10 to 15 reps a couple times, do, do it for 20 minutes, that's that's huge. Um, I always recommend resistance exercises for patients who are able to do it. Um, we know that resistance exercise in, in, in 
addition to or as a complement to cardio is very valuable for um, helping to maintain strength and muscle mass. And we know that muscle mass is helpful um, for metabolism, keeping our metabolic rate up, um, as well as helping with our bone health. So it's really just an all-around great form of exercise. Walking is great, but of course, as you mentioned, uh, getting outside to walk is tough in the cold and, and wet weather for a lot of our patients. One thing that I also sometimes point out is, uh, and actually, you know, e even though this is is not uh, advice that you want to gauge your patient on this, but um, it might not be something that lands for everybody, but uh, when we think about our climate here in Northern California compared to the climates of the world, um, there are many other places whose winter is much harsher, much wetter, much colder, much more uh, inclement. So what I recommend is gear up, get some rain gear. Uh, it's often available at the secondhand store. It's often available, um, actually one of my coworkers just said she saw some at Costco at low, at low cost. So. Um, there are resources for appropriate clothing to get out in the weather. A lot of patients have the, the mistaken idea that getting outside in the cold weather is going to make them sick. So, you know, even, even though it's obvious to most health, all of us healthcare providers that that's not the case, we need to emphasize that with our patients that getting out is actually good for us, even if it's cold. Um, but yes, um, YouTube, resistance exercises at home, um, even going to the library, if they have a way to play, say, a DVD or a video, um, you can get exercise videos like yoga for beginners. Um, so there are many, many forms of exercise that you can do indoors. Um, for patients who can afford it, also, um, there are low-cost gyms that charge only $10 a month, and um, it can be a, a great resource and motivating for patients to have that available to them. So I could go on and on about exercise, but that's probably enough. <laughs> a big thank you to today's presenter, participants, and our listeners. I'm your host, Kelly Bond, and we'll see you next time in the QI chat room. Mm -hmm.